Thank you for listening to the following Foams podcast. Levi has snagged a no-lease apartment, sight unseen in the Hollywood Hills, to crash at while he ties up loose ends for his exodus from Los Angeles. He quickly strikes up a rapport with his new neighbor, John, swapping stories like old friends under the glowing, smoke-filled skies of the city. Soon after meeting, Levi and John witness something impossible in one of their apartments. Terrified at first, they soon realize this could change their lives and give them a purpose. With dollar signs in their eyes, these two eccentric strangers will attempt to prove the supernatural. Today I'm joined by Aaron Moorhead and Justin Benson, the co-creators, co-stars, co-editors, writers, and cinematographers behind Something in the Dirt. Their oddball chemistry shines on screen and in the script as these two isolated, unfulfilled individuals spur each other towards wormholes and away from reality. Something in the Dirt tells a tale of paranoid times where every answer imaginable is just a Google search away. Something in the Dirt will be in theaters on November 4th. Hope you enjoy the show. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this today, gentlemen. I really appreciate it. Oh, likewise, man. Thank you. Well, the first thing I wanted to ask you about, and I apologize if I'm starting off on completely the wrong foot, but I've seen the film three times now. I saw it back in February twice, and I saw it again last night. And I just need to know if you've seen Incubus starring uh, William Shatner. No, no. What is it? So it's a, it's a movie that he did back in the sixties. The one that it's kind of notorious for um, it's the only film that was made in Esperanto. So it's been one of those things that every time I see your movie, just that line that you have about, um, Oh God, what is it? The geometry of magnetism or magnets, whatever that is. It was in Esperanto. It just always triggers that little thing in my mind that yeah. that's somehow like this reference to that thing in a way, because uh, it was uh, the the guy from the outer limits was the one who directed that movie. And then your connection, twilight zone, those kinds of things. So I kind of have my own personal version of something in the dirt going on every time I hear that line. And to me, it's this beautiful line that really encapsulates what I love about this movie, because it's, partially grounded in reality and also bullshit at the same time. And that's kind of, I think the Rosetta stone to this movie. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. <laughs> Have you ever uh, been to this place called the museum of Jurassic technology in Los Angeles? I no, I've never heard of this. And this is I just jumped to the top of the list of things I needed yeah. to go to. <laughs> it's, a, it's a great little museum um, that uh, you, you go through it and it's a museum that has some oddities in it, but it feels like a museum. And after you go through a couple of floors, it's small. You go through a couple of floors of, of these, you know, like, oh, uh, 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 here's the American campsite, you know, is kind of like a, but, but from like an alien anthropological view, as if it's like not an American, like as if you're not an American. Um, and you start seeing there's, there's little like bits of cryptozoology that don't seem totally fake, but like don't totally unbelievable. But you start realizing that half or some percentage or just all of it is completely fake and it doesn't tell you. And, uh, and that attitude was a bit of the inspiration for the movie. Well, it definitely comes through. And I, I love, this is one of the most, uh, it's such a wonderful movie. The idea that the humor here, it's, it's very broad at times, but it's also incredibly specific that I feel like if you don't have a certain, I don't know, reference point that things could just fly right past you and you wouldn't grab like catch it necessarily the first time and it just it seems like it's just pulling from all these to view that are between the two of you because i would use the word singular but it's obviously the two of you 
And there's something that is just so charming about that because it does feel like it's one voice. And it feels like in that way, it becomes utterly relatable because it's something that's so personal and so specific. And I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about um, the making of this and what drove to make such a cool, wonderful, little bizarre film. Yeah, I mean, kick it off. You make an interesting point that um, our movies do tend to update. Our movies do have a singular a singular sentiment, a singular vision, a singular feel to them, despite there being two of us. But this movie specifically, the two characters are, by their nature, the point of their relationship is they're wildly different, nearly opposite people in many ways. Um, and uh, it's so it's, I'm just actually, just you saying that made me realize like, oh yeah, like still singular vision, but more so than ever, the two characters are pulling in very, very different directions. Um, and that was part of the inspiration for making it. Um, There's so many points of, of, of inspiration for the genesis of the film. Um, a big one was just our desire to each play a character that was wildly different than, than who we are in real life. And a lot of the construction of these guys was was based off of that. Some of that was the excitement of just playing something that's way different than who we are. And some of it was um, was driven by like, well, if you, you know, the more different you make these fictional people than you are in real life, the less likely people are once it enters the world to think that it was autobiographical to you in some way. So it makes you feel more free um, to make them as flawed as you want to make them because no one's going to think it's actually you. Um, there's but there's other i mean so many points of inspiration mm-hmm. yeah the the i mean museum of jurassic technology is one of them um the uh the desire to explore the the idea of what we would do with a haunted house movie um it was barely a haunted house movie it would be really weird if they marketed it that way uh, <laughs> but that was the problem is we kept on pitching on big haunted house movie franchises and and stuff like that and uh, and they'd say, like, get weird, guys, get weird. Like, we need something outside of the box. And then we'd get weird and pitch, you know, a lot of these ideas that are in something in the dirt. And uh, and they were like, yeah, not that weird. Not that weird. <laughs> get the job. And uh, but we knew that uh, uh, we we knew that these ideas were good ideas. And so we we ended up in some ways making an omnibus of a lot of them and uh, putting it into the, the construct of two people that are exploring all of these ideas and uh, and taking a good shot at them. Um, Something that's that's not in the movie, because we found out we're just kind of sort of focusing a little more on it right after we shot, but obviously the movie makes a reference to Jack Parsons in, in weaving this fictional cult history of Los Angeles. And something that's not in the movie that's really interesting that does still oddly influence the movie in real life is that um, the movie makes a statement that, you know, Jack Parsons may have something to do with this phenomenon, Aleister Crowley, all of that. And then it kind of jumps to Aldous Huxley having a psychedelic experience at some point and getting into Laurel Canyon culture at a certain point of these uh, sort of famous counterculture rock stars who had passed away, who were affiliated or lived here in some way. What's not in the movie that's interesting is that um, uh, Jack Parsons' widow is really the, the the bridge from Aleister Crowley and Jack Parsons and the sort of what was the Hermetic or the Golden Dawn and what that became Thelema. Like her her role in like roughly 1930s Western Hermetic esoteric occult 
she was the one who, after Jack Parsons died, who carried it on into the psychedelic 1960s. So some of the mythology these guys are are pointing out in the canyon is some of it. It's, it's really interesting because again, there's not much of the occult to draw from in LA, but it's interesting that there is this woman who was Jack Parsons' widow, who, who was kind of responsible for carrying that stuff forward into more of the modern day, or at least the 60s and 70s. You know, I just realized only because of our personal connection to it, there's one other person that probably would have existed without Marjorie Cameron, which is Kenneth Anger. Kenneth Anger. Um, yeah. And, and and I say it because yeah, uh, I lived across the street from the house he would party in. And it's like this black house uh, that's that uh, that we ended up we ended up uh, at a couple like Halloween parties or something like that in there. And someone said, oh, this is Samson DeBreer's house, which is uh, this this kind of social occult socialite. That would hang out with Marjorie Cameron and um, and Kenneth Anger, and they ended up making you know movies together called in, in, in Initiation of the Pleasure Dome and and a couple others. Um, Dennis Hopper was probably hanging out at that house too. Uh, See, then you say there's not much uh, to draw upon as far as the history of the occult in you Los Angeles. All of it, like that's <laughs> literally all of it. <laughs> I know it's not actually true, by the way. But like, yeah. there's there's definitely occult scholars that would really turn their noses up at what we're saying. We're just talking about by comparison to Western Europe. Or oh, Asia. Oh, well, okay. Yeah. But, I mean, but by yes. comparison to London, where it's just it's it's dripping into every stone, you know. Then it the stuff that's happened in LA though, it's it's notorious though. It has a longevity to it. It's not woven into the fabric of the society necessarily in LA. You don't feel it every mm-hmm. at every corner. But I, I wonder how much of that is when you do go to when you're in Eastern Europe and you just see these old buildings, how much of that is us projecting it upon it and how much of it is actually there. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you get a similar feeling when you're in the Northeast. And, you know, I, I think to some degree, but yeah, the history of it's not quite the same, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um yeah. And to me, it's like the one of the first tricks I learned how to do when I was first picked up a VHS camera when I was in sixth grade and started messing around and trying to make movies on my own was taking a video camera and pointing it at the monitor and getting that video feedback, that endless loop kind of thing. And that's that um, playing with that idea and those kind of do-it-yourself things, those sort of tricks that you can do almost feels like the structure of this film to me where it's every it's as layers on top of each other where there's except in each projection each image that's repeating itself there's slight deviations um and that's kind of also one of the things i started picking up and re-watching this film is that you can tell the point of view of what's real and what's fake to some degree by how it's being shot at times and you can see whether this is the reenactment but it's not always clear and i think this is something that i would never be able unlock but i feel like you guys know what's going on in each one of those <laughs> shots is that the case yeah i would say that that is the case there, there's definitely like it is designed though that the movie would be open to interpretation of exactly how much of it is real and how much of it is fake and whose point of view a scene is um and and sometimes we just made sure that it, that the Venn, it, it fit right in the middle of the venn diagram so that it could be both um so I, I can tell you, if you locked both of us in separate rooms um, we, and, and said, like, all right, precisely say what scenes are whose point of view and which, there's a chance there would be minor discrepancies because they, they were designed to be both often. Or not both, but multiple. Because um, there's, of course, the unseen um, other filmmaker 
the voice by Issa Lopez and and other editors that have clearly had their hands on. <laughs> and and I, I love that this the editing part of it that you're th- making that your Spinal Tap drummer that you've just had this endless line of editors that are going sort of film that just keep they just give up throw their hands up and walk away from it that they can't either for moral reasons or perhaps it's just that they're you know not able to work with these guys and I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about using editing as a tool in this film probably more than you ever have as a narrative point where there's direct jokes from the cutaways and these interstitials that you have that are some of my favorite moments in the film where you just have what it cuts away to is where the punchline is and how much of these things that you're cutting to were found and how much of them did you have to create? I'm sorry. I know it's a lot. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, today's episode of the following films podcast is brought to you by Bookman's. I'm joined today by my son, Jacob. Jacob, say hello to the people. Oh, there you go. You're already on it. So, Jacob, when you go to Bookman's, what is it that you like to look at? What do you like to get? To get toys uh, and movies and and the coffee news. You like to look at the movies and you like to get the coffee news, the newspaper they have out front? That's great. So, last time we went into Bookman's, I picked up a movie. Um, What movie did I get, Jacob? A stick from New York, but that's... The name as it hurts of the uh, ex uh, as to cover. Sorry, sorry. I so no, no, you're okay. Would you talk a little bit about what you see on the cover of Escape from New York on this Blu-ray that I got? So based on this cover, you see glass shattered and also the Statue of Liberty's face fell apart because. In this movie, Escape from New York, is the introduction is a man trying to save the president's daughter, and New York turns into a prison in this movie. And there's the hero, as you can see, very strong, in fact. Oh, yeah. Now, this is one of my favorite movies. I love this movie. Now, you're too young to watch it because you're only six years old, but do you think in a couple of years from now, when you get a little bit older, you'll want to check out Escape from New York? Yeah. Okay, what's a movie that you've seen that we picked up at Bookman's that you like? Come here, talk so that people can hear you. A Little Shop of Horrors? Little Shop of Horrors, that's a great movie. So, when you're going to Bookman's, you can get movies, DVDs, Blu-rays, 4K, Laserdisc, VHS. You can also get comic books, books, newspapers, magazines, home furnishings. Uh, You can get tons of stuff there. Because remember, Bookman's has your cool covered. Hope you enjoy the rest of the show. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Yeah. Well, the 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 cutaways were something that well, when we were rehearsing, um, we had decided to do, and it was just like a joke. But hey, what would cut to this here? Like, for I don't know, it may have been the um, uh, Levi talking about the dishwasher he had worked with who lost his jaw to some plant before John went into yeah. It may, it may have been that moment, but it was something like that, where I was like, what if we could just cut to this jarring image for for a joke? And then we we realized that it's like, oh, we should, we're already making a documentary. Why would we not just do that all over the movie? It created a lot of extra shots. Um, a Basically lot of extra shots. our entire next year because of that. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and then in terms of it being an editor's movie, it really is our, we work with a third editor. Aaron and I, we do a lot of the editing, but really, uh, it's our third editor, Michael Falker, who does a lot of the heavy lifting and 
And um, this movie was a huge accomplishment or just a very impressive thing that, that he did that we've always like wanted to honor because it's a very hard movie to edit, not only from a standpoint of like we were talking about it, like whose point of view is it at any given time, unreliable narrator, all that stuff. But the other thing was that um, uh, the, the footage itself is shot on so many different cameras and some of those cameras like literally like it's hard to even find an editing program to to have the footage digitized um and and other than that just a massive massive amount of data and information to be wrangled in and 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 shaped into to what he did um insanely impressive uh um can't even imagine i'm so happy we didn't have to do that part (laughs) (laughs) i I legitimately believe that um if Michael Belker gets the attention for the editing that he did in this film that he deserves, this it would be studied in, in community college film classes. It, it's it's it is a good case study of like low budget film editing that that has it's clearly an editor's movie without being like this flashy thing. Um, but the movie can be edited in 800 million different ways. And it's about the point of view of the edit. It's actually like reflective on itself in that way. Yeah. And that, and it's, and then again, it's that video feedback thing where the way you're editing it, whose point of view are you actually representing at that moment? And it's, it's, it's so incredible that you can have a movie that's just shy of two hours longer, right at two hours long. That is, as you were saying, the point of view of this unreliable narrator that does leave some ambiguity, but it doesn't feel like there's, really any fat on this film i feel like you couldn't really remove any of these pieces to it and it it just feels like any one of these scenes and the weight of the film that would just fall apart underneath it that everything here is absolutely necessary in the actual end product and i i I can't say that about a lot of films and especially you know revisiting it three times now at this point thank you that's very good to hear we had a sort of mystery occur where the, the script was like 93 pages long or something and the first cut was somehow three and a half hours and we just don't even know how that happened and it was really 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 hard to get it down because it wasn't like everything built on the next thing so it was, you couldn't just pull something out and the next thing didn't make sense uh and there was one big there was one relatively larger chunk that michael felker figured out how to pull out and was replaced with the the uh audio John recording phone call between him and Le- Levi portion. Um, that was something that was completely uh, come up. Michael Felker completely came up with that. Uh, and it was a huge solve because it was a, we were able to pull out a gigantic chunk of the movie that was making it really unwieldy. <laughs> What's also great about it, you know, micro budget filmmaking in that way is Justin and I watched the the solve that Michael Felker had tempted in, you know, and he, he kind of like he used his own voice and kind of like wrote like what what it could be and all of that. And it was just a card in the movie. And then two hours later, we'd written it for our own voice, recorded it, and it was in the movie. And it was great where it's like, oh, does this solve work? And it just was there immediately. Whereas we we know from experience, like on a large budget thing, like that could take a month. It could take yeah. a month to book the actors to get the studio space to to get them to cut it in to you know all of that like yeah is there anything you've taken away from working in these constraints and this because i mean even for you guys who have always done things on not always you've worked on kind of 
every scale you could possibly work at, but the stuff that I'm really attracted to are these smaller, you know, personal films that you do. I'm wondering if there's something from this one, which is probably the most micro budget, smallest uh, confined space that you've worked in with the smallest crew you've ever had. Is this something that you would take away things you've learned from this now that the world has opened up a little bit more from where you've shot this from when you've shot this? Yeah. I mean, I mean, probably the biggest lesson from it was just that uh, we fully realizing that we don't make smaller films so that we can go make bigger films. Um, We make smaller films because we love making smaller films and, 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 and these, and the, the two different endeavors can really feed off of each other in terms of inspiration. Um, but, uh, but I think, you know, something we already more or less had realized, but it was just definitely like the final, the final like reinforcement that it's like, no, this is like, this is, this is never something to be left behind. This is something that you will continuously do throughout the rest of your life because it's important. I, I, I completely agree with that. And there's the idea at the end of this film that I think is so beautiful, the making friends. And it's something about not not waiting for permission to get the chance to do the thing that you want to do um, is something that I actually learned from you guys back when you did Spring, uh, because you were one of my first interviews that I ever did. Um, was oh, I talked to you guys? Cool. Yeah, yeah. This was it was. Um, a long time ago, I had no idea what I was doing. I haven't gotten much better, but I think I've gotten more confident as I've gone along and it's, you guys were, you gave validation and you were kind and you were warm then as you are now. And it was something that actually had a profound impact. And I didn't wait for permission for somebody to say, it's okay to do this. You should be doing this. It was seeing guys like you doing this work that made me say, yeah, I think I can just go out and do this and make this thing on my own. Cause I feel like doing it. And Thank you for that and uh, for the oh, validation. I appreciate it. What an honor. That's that's very cool. That that is uh, a good reason why we do what we do. Is that hopefully we can inspire some good movies to get made. <laughs> well, the, I I don't know about the the movies being good or anything like that that I would do, but it's the act of doing the thing that's fun to do on the weekend. So I, I enjoy that part of it. And quality, well, maybe that'll come eventually. <laughs> But thank you both so much for taking the time to do this today. It was really a pleasure to speak with you again. And I, I hope that I get to time soon. Awesome. Thank you. Guys. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Take care. Talk to you again. Oh, bye-bye. Time enough to figure you out. Time enough to write this down. Wish me luck. Give me hope.
my boys crack.